This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and it's part three of our special week-long series, More Than Money, The Cost of Monopolies in America, where we're looking at whether it's time to expand the definition of harm when it comes to corporate monopolies. Do they harm not just consumers and competition, but democracy itself? Well, that is the view held by several members of the Biden administration. Lena Kahn, current chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Jonathan Cantor, head of the Justice Department's Antitrust Division, and Tim Wu, a Columbia Law School professor who's now special assistant to the president on competition policy at the National Economic Council. Together, along with other antitrust advocates, they've been called part of a new Brandeis movement. Well, today, we're going to take a look at the last great national push against monopolies that gave rise to that name. So, hop on into the Wayback Machine with me. First quick stop, 1936. That very word, freedom, in itself and of necessity suggests freedom from some restraining power. In 1776, We sought freedom from the tyranny of a political autocracy, from the 18th century royalists who held special privileges from the crown. Running for re-election in 1936, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave a speech lambasting what he called the tyranny of monopoly power. The struggle against economic tyranny, he said, began at the moment of the country's founding. But the founders could not anticipate the coming Industrial Revolution and how it would challenge their ideas of economic and political liberty. But since that struggle, man's inventive genius released new forces in our land, forces which reordered the lives of our people. The age of machinery, of railroads, of steam and electricity, the telegraph and the radio, mass production, mass distribution, all of these combined to bring forward a new civilization and with it a problem for those who sought to remain free. Now, what was that problem? Well, it was a new homegrown monopoly capitalism. Throughout the nation, opportunity was limited by monopoly. Individual initiative was crushed in the cogs of a great machine. The the field open for free business was more and more restrictive. Private enterprise, indeed, became too private. It became privileged enterprise not free enterprise. FDR gave that speech at the end of a multi-decade struggle against new monopolies that controlled railroads, banks, tobacco, steel mills, oil refineries, and often even the levers of government. So who were the politicians and the people who stood up to those great monopolies and tore them down? Well, Charles Postel joins us today. He's professor of history at San Francisco State University and author of Equality, An American Dilemma, 1866 to 1896, and also author of The Populist Vision. Professor Postel, welcome to On Point. Ah, thank you. And joining us today as well is Jack Beatty, On Point's news analyst. His book on the rise of monopolies in the Gilded Age is called The Age of Betrayal, 
Triumph, uh, the Triumph of Money in America, 1865 to 1900. Jack, hello there. Hello, Magda. Hello, Charles. So, you know, Jack, I've already received some emails from listeners who are asking, why did we not start uh, with the East India Company and the founding <laughs> of America if we're really going to talk about monopolies? So explain to us, why is it that we chose to actually for, uh, fast forward to um, about a century ago rather than 200 plus years ago? Sure, because this is when uh, a recognizably modern uh, America e- economy emerged. The earlier period, yes, there was uh, certainly the protest against the tea, and then there was the Jackson's attack on the bank monopoly. But but in the main, that economy was, uh, you know, inter- individual uh, entrepreneurs, farmers. It was an economy of small. Uh, That changed to an economy of big after the Civil War, partly because of technological changes, the railroad and so on, uh, and also because of changes in the form of business, uh, the the growth of the great corporation. So we we picked this period because this is the period when that great uh, change from small to big happens. Okay. Now, Professor Postel... Um, we're really sort of roughly starting where your book starts just after the Civil War. And the Civil War is inescapably, uh, to my mind, part of this picture. So set up what it is about the United States beginning in 1866 that contributes to uh, what Jack just described, this very rapid rise of giant corporations. Uh, The rise is, is rapid, but I think we need to think about it as a movement from the Civil War to the turn of the century, uh, there's a lot of change. At the time of the Civil War, the only really big companies were railway companies, steamship companies. Uh, There's tremendous change in technology, the telegraph, the railroads, to create these really big companies. And there was a lot of concern about them. Uh, We oftentimes think about them in a strange way, though. Uh, uh, We think of them as as the big companies that farmers rose up after the Civil War and tried to break up and bring back small economies. But what really happens is, is farmers, and America is still largely an agricultural country in the 1860s and 70s. Uh, most, the biggest occupation in the country is still farming. But for farmers, the railway was absolutely essential. And they, supported the railways. They wanted bigger and better railways. Uh, At the same time, uh, they're very concerned about the monopoly power of railways. Mm. And what that meant was that they wanted railways that would not get in the way of them getting their crops to the markets of New York or London. And uh, that is where they emerge as as the great anti-monopoly movement in the 1860s and 70s, mainly took the form of the Farmer's Grange that's formed in the late 1860s. And the Farmer's Grange is the first time that anti-monopoly really becomes a major force in American politics after the Civil War. Okay, hang on here for just a second, because I want to turn to Jack on that. Jack, pick up that thought. What, What would you add? Well, yes, uh, and it, it, let's, let's talk about monopoly first, and how did all this start? And I think there's probably no better way than to focus on sort of the, the prince of monopoly in America, John D. Rockefeller. 
Uh, he, uh, probably no person, no businessman in American history has hated competition more than, than, than Rockefeller. He came by this um, sort of biographically. It turned out that his family had, his father was a bigamist. There was a competing family. There was a competing son. And, and that sense of chaos and of sort of, you know, having to compete with the other family, I think that thoroughly colored his whole uh, uh, personality, his hatred of chaos, and his view that competition, especially in the business he finally got into, oil refinery, kerosene, that that, uh, that that anarchy of production was had to be put down. And the way to put it down was to join for, uh, forces. You know, in, in one 48-hour period he, in Cleveland, he purchased something like six different oil <laughs> refineries, and he concentrated. And he said, you know, this is, I'm, a, I'm, I'm saving you. I'm, I'm, join the ark. You can be part of things. And he did it partly through uh, unexampled political corruption. Uh, it was said of him that uh, Standard Oil did everything to the Pennsylvania legislature except refine it. <laughs> he did it through, through, through really excruciating uh, payback deals, drawback deals with railroads, such that he, he actually got rebates on shipments sent by his competition. Uh, things unheard of, at ruthlessness unparalleled. But the result of it was to take an industry that was succumbing to the anarchy of, pro of, 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 of overproduction, he concentrated it mm. and, and, and created an industry that lasted well into the 20th century. Wow. Okay. So, Professor Postal, if you want to respond to that, please, please go ahead. Um, yeah, what, what Jack's talking about is by, the, by 1890 or so, uh, uh, you have the rise of these really big corporations. And the way it, it's a complicated process, it doesn't happen right away. Uh, and what is, what's going on is that trusts are forming originally. And a trust was a, a pooling agreement to raise prices and to control monopolized markets. And it's what you have is in the 1880s and up, leading up to the 1890s is you have virtually, it's led by Standard Oil. In 1882 is the first trust, and what it is is basically a pool with a legal agreement uh, uh, for for enforcing this pooling or this monopoly. And this first one is <coughs> Standard Oil in 1890 in 1882, and then it's followed up by uh, you know virtually every piece of the economy follows this. You have a, a you have a sugar trust and a whiskey trust. And an envelope trust, and a salt trust, and a rope trust, a meat trust, and so forth and so on. And this gives rise to a great concern about the power of these monopolies. And one result of that is the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. Mm. Yeah. So we're going to talk about and, that. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. We're just heading um, yep. rapidly into the break here. Yeah. But Jack, let me just give you another uh, an, another 30 seconds to, to describe something to us. By 1890, it sounds like there were uh, there was a huge amount of consolidation in um, uh, in the, in the American economy. Is it is it similar? Are there echoes of that now? Well, yes, especially in uh, particular sectors, uh, the, the tech sector, as we talked about yesterday, and we heard, have heard again and again the statistic that in something like 
the majority of American industries, uh, concentration has, has markedly increased over the past 20 years. Okay, so when we come back, we'll talk more uh, about these trusts. We'll talk about important names in this period of history and then, of course, you know, what they did. So Jack Beattie and Charles Postal stand by. We'll be right back. It's On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're bringing you part three of our special week-long series called More Than Money, The Cost of Monopolies in America. And I'm joined today by Jack Beattie. He's On Point's news analyst and also author of Age of Betrayal, The Triumph of Money in America, 1865 to 1900. And Charles Postal joins us as well. He's a professor of history at San Francisco State University and author of The Populist Vision and Equality, An American Dilemma, 1866 to 1896. And before we move uh, forward more deeply into the, the late 19th century and, and early 20th century. Professor Postal, before the break, you had actually briefly mentioned, mentioned the Farmer's Grange movement. And I actually wanted to hear a little bit more about that because um, it suddenly brought to mind, uh, as listeners know, because I talk about it all the time, but I grew up in, in Oregon and I my whole life practically I would drive by basically the local Grange Hall, Benton County Grange Hall. And I never thought about what exactly is it. It was just kind of across from... Um, a local grain elevator. Um, so tell us more about the farmers' grange movement. You had mentioned that they didn't necessarily seek to break up the railroad monopolies, but you also called them the first anti-monopolistic movement. Right. The grange. The grange is formed in 1867, and it was very strong in Oregon, uh, on the West Coast. It was. It was it was a massive organization, uh, virtually everywhere in the West, the Midwest, and the South. Uh, farm districts, the majority of farmers would be part of it. And it was a social movement, a social organization, but they also were very concerned about the economy and the place of farmers in the economy. And the way they thought about it was that a monopoly was anybody, any enterprise that got in the way of farmers having an equal place in the national economy. So the a monopoly could be the local supply store because they they had a grip on the local market of goods and they had shoddy goods. And so they would far, the, the Grange would organize a cooperative to, to bypass the local merchants. They oftentimes the monopolies were the local merchants, the people they hated most. But they also had confrontations with the railway corporations and the grain elevator companies. And uh, famously, they uh, pushed for what were known as Granger laws. The, the biggest of these were in Illinois and in uh, Wisconsin, but are they also uh, extended to the West Coast? And these Granger laws were state le state legislation that set the price 
and the services for railways and grain elevators, allowing farmers better access to the market. They didn't want to break up these, these railways. They wanted to control them. Uh, they considered them public vehicles uh, and that the public should regulate them. And the most important thing about the Granger laws is they weren't very successful because they were just state laws uh, and interstate commerce, and that didn't work very well. But the, legally, they were important because they established the principle that the public uh, should be able to control corporations or companies that had that much public uh, power. Okay. And so... And so that was the key thing about the Granger laws. Okay, so that's really that's really fascinating um, because then we move to um, uh, quickly move to a time period again that we just touched on in the previous segment, where as you had said, Professor Postal, um, we have the rise of these trusts. So well beyond railroads, right? You, you basically said right. that that almost everything it sounds like, uh, right, be, became every product or service or commodity became part of of a trust. Right, and that's in, and that's in the 18, 1880s that trustification yeah. takes place, and then you have the Sherman Antitrust Act, which basically make uh, says that's illegal. You may not have a combination that restrains trade. Uh, you can't attempt to monopolize trade. That's in eighteen ninety. Uh, the really important thing about the Sherman Antitrust Act is for the next dozen years or so, it's never used or almost never used against companies. It's almost exclusively used against labor organizations. Most famously, it was used to break the Pullman strike of 1894, mm-hmm. the railway strike of that time. And it's what sent Eugene Victor Debs to, to federal prison, was violating the court injunctions that were connected to this Sherman Antitrust Act. Uh, but so, that, so that's the dead letter. But something very important happens, and that is the incorporation laws are, are changing and the legal uh, protections of corporations are expanding. So people say, we don't need trust anymore. We're just going to have these monster corporations. And that's where I think Jack's story of Standard Oil really takes off. Yeah. Uh, that's It's under that rubric that that happens. Okay. So Jack, then um, uh, tell me more because I, I'm eager to understand how then we see um, – the, the growth of these trusts, uh, the rise of, of these big monopolies, and, and how do we know at what point in time it became a concern for uh, a larger concern for democracy in general? Well, I think that, that really comes in with the, with the Sherman Act. And, and um, looking back on this period in the Supreme Court decision that approved the dissolution of the breakup, uh, order the breakup of Standard Oil. Justice Harlan drew a picture of the climate of opinion in 1890 and how alarmed Americans were at the growth within their uh, democracy uh, uh, of, a, of a seemingly anti-Republican small-r institution, uh, a sort of, you know, uh, power within the power. And uh, Senator Sherman, in his speech uh, on the Senate floor, Introducing the Sherman Act voices this 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 idea that monopoly is a threat to democracy, and this, of course, is the, the same thread that we see here today in Lena Khan and these other neo 
Brandeisians who are saying, look, it isn't just price that, that, that we need to look at when we're talking about concentration. It's the threat to Republican institutions. Here's Sherman. He said, if we will not endure a king as a political power, we should not endure a king over the production, transportation, and sale of any of the necessities of life. If we would not submit to an emperor, we should not submit to a autocratic power of trade with power to prevent competition and to fix the price of any commodity. Senator Hoare spoke of these monopolies, quote, as a menace to Republican institutions. And this is where we get the, the sort of, I think, um, inspiriting vision of antitrust, that it's about the threat that bigness poses to democracy in that Bigness, you can buy out government, and it can put the small man uh, into a position of economic dependency on uh, on the big man. Okay, so this was that what you just said was really critical because I had had on the tip of my tongue, Jack, what felt like a gauche question, which was, it, you know, a century ago, how you know what was the public's measure by which they could say the power of these monopolies was so great that it was interfering with with democracy. And it sounds like the measure was a familiar one, just kind of, be, you know, being able to buy out government. Is there is there a particular person or story that really encapsulates that? I mean, J.P. Morgan's jumping to mind here, but I don't know if that's the right one, Jack. Uh, well, you know, there were all sorts of purchases of government. Uh, it, was a, it was an era of, I mean, in fact, there's a famous uh, punch cartoon of uh, the Senate debating antitrust legislation with uh, figures of the trust, the senators as these swollen porcine figures, one representing the sugar trust, one the shoe trust, one the... And, you know, politicians were bought. In that regard, it was very like today. I mean, uh, our politicians are largely bought at the federal level, and, and, and so were they. And, they. and those politicians tried to geld the thrust of the, of the Sherman Act. And our, our uh, politicians, I I suspect today are going to try to do the same to the neo-Brandesians. Mm. Uh, Professor Postal, you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I, I think the one thing we should keep in mind is the great, we have a great example of the, of the populist party or the people's party of the 1890s, which really sounded the alarm against corporate power. It was the most important third party movement since the Civil War. And it was also, the, also an explicitly anti-monopoly, anti-corporate party. And they raise these issues that Jack is raising, that, that we have to get money out of politics. We have to have uh, we have to get uh, corporate money out of selection of senators. They, so they so they push for the popular election of senators. Uh, they push for direct democracy legislation, civil service reform, the secret ballot, all kinds of measures which we now know that money is able to circumvent, but which at the time was directly to get corporations out of out of politics. The other thing that's really important to think about the populace is they were not anti-big. Uh, they were not against the bigness of economy. Uh, they wanted public control of economy. And I think that's an important distinction in, in the history of anti-monopoly is, is there's a tension between do we want, is, is, the, is the problem bigness or is it lack of public control? And the populace, they actually felt that the solution was that railroads should be run like the post office, that the telegraph should be run like the post office. That was the only way to get uh, the corporations out of 
uh, uh, under popular control. And so the post office model was their model of economy, which is, of course, really big. Uh, And I think it's important to know that Elizabeth Warren, for example, has been pushing for post office banking. Uh, Mm -hmm. In other words, banks provide services and banking services, which, of course, was what the populists were advocating in the 1890s, not breaking up the banks, but putting them under the control of the post office. So, Jack, I'm going to come back to you in a second. But uh, Professor Postal, I think it was actually from our um, earlier our producer's conversation with you where um, the example of J.P. Morgan comes up because at at the time he was called, you know, in the late 19th century, he was referred to as the nation's banker, right? One of the most powerful men, uh, non-elected men in the country. Why why is the story of what happened to J.P. Morgan um, kind of appropriate to understand uh, monopolies at the time? Well, J.P. Morgan was a tremendously powerful uh, financial figure. His position uh, you know, it wasn't just in banking, but he controlled uh, steel and uh, international harvester. All these companies were, were uh, you know, controlled by J.P. Morgan's network. He was considered, I think he was, the most powerful uh, financier in the country. So there is this question of the financialization of the economy. People were very concerned about that. Um, uh, so J.P. Morgan is... is by the early 20th century is a key figure in, in uh, thinking about monopolies in America. Uh, it's important to know that, that you know, when we're gonna get to this, but when the antitrust movement gained strength in the early 20th century, JP Morgan has his setbacks and that's important. We'll get to that, but, mm. but, but he is the target and he also has his setbacks. When we have the breakup of, uh, of uh, the Northern Securities Trust, that's a J.P. Morgan trust that's broken up effectively. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. Jack, um, this time period also coincides with another important American that we have to talk about, and that's President Teddy Roosevelt, right? I mean, what did he bring to the White House um, that, uh, that added um, uh, fuel and energy to the antitrust movement in the United States? Well, he brought uh, scale. I mean, uh, there had been there was no opportunity for state governments to control the growth of economic enterprise. Uh, an example I started to use yesterday is in Boston, where uh, Louis Brandeis was involved uh, in, in in suits against a big railroad. There, the railroad had. Uh, huge income every year and 18,000 employees. The whole Commonwealth of Massachusetts had 6,000 employees and, you know, barely 40 millions in tax, in tax returns every year. The scale couldn't be matched. It had to be met at the, uh, at the federal level. And, and Roosevelt said, uh, he said, uh, the power of the mighty industrial overlords had increased with giant strides while the methods of controlling them or checking abuses by them on the part of the people through the government remained archaic and therefore practically impotent. They had to be met by federal power. And he did do that uh, with his uh, trust busting and uh, started the, 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 the ball rolling that broke up Standard Oil, uh, the, 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 big, the big railroad case against uh, the J.P. Morgan uh, combine, uh, and, and in general put 
put government uh, as a as a as the as an anti put teeth in antitrust. Mm. Well, let's listen to the voice of President Teddy Roosevelt himself. This is from 1912 in a speech where Theodore Roosevelt called for a square deal for everyday Americans. We wish so to shape conditions that a greater number of the small men in business, the decent, respectable, industrious and energetic men who conduct small businesses, who are retail traders, who run small stores and shops, shall be able to succeed. And so that the big man who is dishonest shall not be allowed to succeed at all. President Theodore Roosevelt in 1912. Jack, what do you hear in that? <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, inf- the emphasis on saving the small man. Roosevelt talked uh, movingly about the crushable elements at the bottom of our industrial civilization. And the square deal would be an effort to give them a better, a better shot. However, uh, as we're going to find out, his position wasn't let's bust up more trusts in 1912. On the contrary, he wanted to live with bigness uh, and he wanted to, to domesticate it. And in his position, which is regulate bigness, regulate the big corporation, uh, we see adumbrated one of the stances toward contemporary antitrust. You know, the, the, I think Lena Khan has talked about this. You know, we, you, it, it isn't so much break up the big as put it under, under uh, more supervision. Um, and then on the other side, there are those who say, no, you just got to break it up. That was the position of Wilson, not of uh, TR. Hmm. Professor Postal, we've got about a minute before our, our next break here, but I just want you to pick up the thought, re- respond to what Jack said. Yeah, no, Jack is completely right. TR is known as a, as the trust buster, but he was ambivalent about breaking up trust. He, he, he his, his position was, was that, look, uh, let's get, Let's get the big people together and sort out things. So, so he's pretty famous for um, his position. For example, uh, you know, during the anthracite coal strike of 1902, you know, he bring the coal companies into the White House and let's talk this over. Uh, that was his approach to this type of this type of problem, uh, and and uh, and that was. So I think that we think of him as a trust buster. He's more, he, he felt, felt that let's bring, the, bring people together uh, and, and regulate these companies. H.L. Hmm. Mencken famously said about TR, he didn't believe in democracy, he believed in government. Huh. And I think what he meant by that was that TR f- f- believed in himself yeah. as, a, as, a, as a power to arbitrate. Well, we'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. 
This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, On Point listeners. I'm poet and author Shin Yi Pai. As you celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I invite you to listen to the 10,000 Things podcast from KUOW and the NPR Network. 10,000 Things is a podcast about modern artifacts of Asian American life, ordinary objects that tell extraordinary stories and reveal something profound about the experience of being Asian in America. Find 10,000 Things from KUOW and the NPR Network wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's part three of our special series that we're calling More Than Money, The Cost of Monopolies in America, where we're taking a look at the fact that some key people in the Biden administration say that we have to rethink how we measure the harm that monopolies do, think of it beyond harm to consumers or harm to competition, and ask whether monopolistic consolidation in this country is harming democracy. Now, today we're taking a look at the era a century or so ago that gave rise to the kind of thinking uh, that folks like the current FTC chair are espousing. I'm joined today by Jack Beatty. He's On Point's news analyst and author of Age of Betrayal, The Triumph of Money in America from 1865 to 1900. And Charles Postel joins us as well. He's a professor of history at San Francisco State University and author of Equality, An American Dilemma, 1866 to 1896. Now, what uh, one of the things that keeps... Um, you know, sort of coursing through my mind, gentlemen, is how did the, you know, the American people know? How did they get a sense um, a century or a century and a half ago that the power that these monopolies had was was so great that it was actually having an impact on the government of the people? How did they understand the inner workings of the monop- of those monopolies in order to to get that bigger picture of the relationship between um, economic might uh, and uh, the health and well-being of their own government? Well, part of the answer is the journalism of the time, isn't it? So we reached out to Stephanie Gorton, who wrote a history of the so-called muckrakers, uh, the journalists at the turn of the last century. She did that in her book, Citizen Reporters, S.S. McClure, Ida Tarbell, and the magazine that rewrote the America, rewrote America. And the book really focuses on the second of those three, one Ida Tarbell. When Ida Tarbell was born in Erie County, Pennsylvania in 1857, it wasn't yet an oil region. In the course of her youth, commercial uses for oil began to multiply across the United States, and oil refining really came into its own as an industry. As a result, Erie County, Pennsylvania really began to flood with prospectors, with fortune hunters, with independent oil refiners like her father, and with burgeoning companies like Standard Oil. So they were very much part of the same community. When she was 15 years old, the South Improvement Company, which was a sweetheart deal between Standard Oil and three railroad companies, effectively drove the independent producers and refiners of that region into bankruptcy. There was a real schism in the community between those associated with Standard Oil and those who were trying to make it on their own. Tarbell never really recovered from that. Her father never really recovered from that. It drove them from middle-class stability into a much less stable and uh, assured future. Now, just to get an idea about how much power Standard Oil had, uh, a little later, 
roughly 1910-1911, Standard Oil controlled more than 85% of the nation's national capacity for uh, refining oil. But even before that, Ida Tarbell watched her father go into bankruptcy at the hands of John D. Rockefeller. And that made a rebel out of Tarbell. It was around that time that she made a vow that she would never marry. She would never depend on someone else to make her money. And she was really unusual for the time of having seen so much and having those ambitions. She went to Paris in her early 30s to be a freelance writer, but then came the so-called Panic of 1893, and it was impossible for Tarbell to make a living freelancing in Paris, so she came back to the United States. And that's when she took a staff writer job at McClure's magazine. She started out really as an entertainment writer. She was writing these serialized biographies of Napoleon, of Abraham Lincoln. And then McClure's realized it was a bit behind the curve in covering this issue with the trusts, that this was a huge topic in the news media, the growth of the great monopolies of the beef trust, the sugar trust, of oil, and they needed a story on the trusts and fast. Tarbell was their best and most experienced investigative writer at the time. And she was given a, an assignment of three articles. She ended up taking this much deeper and writing a much more comprehensive story. She wrote 19 articles, a two-volume book about Standard Oil, making it this landmark work that led directly to the breakup of Standard Oil in 1911. And Gorton says that Tarbell held herself to a much higher standard of journalism than was usual for those times. Fact-checking, she confirmed her story with other sources, and she was dogged. She became close to Rockefeller's head PR person, Henry Rogers. And for a couple of years, Rogers would smuggle her into the Standard Oil offices, and they'd have these secret interviews where she would try to confirm her findings with him. And he was also, she hoped, her avenue into meeting Rockefeller himself eventually. Though that never came to pass, she ended up sneaking into a church service where he was also in attendance to try and write her personal impressions of him. Now, it might be easy to assume that more than a century ago, digging into the business uh, of a massive economic titan like Rockefeller as a woman, Tarbell might have faced some insurmountable odds, but not so, says biographer Stephanie Gordon. I will say there are some ways in which being a a woman may have worked in her favor in that interviewees were perhaps less threatened by her or more willing to meet with her just on a lark out of curiosity. And when she showed up, she could be very disarming. I think one listener at a lecture tour described her as your favorite aunt or Joe March, all grown up. She was not a pretentious or a formidable person at all. And if anything, Ida Tarbell got the most criticism from other journalists. She encountered doubts from fellow journalists, including the Atlantic journalist Henry Demarest Lloyd, who'd written about Standard Oil previously. Eventually, he wrote her a letter of admiration, saying, when you get through with Johnny, I don't think there will be very much left of him except something resembling one of his own grease spots. And in a sense, that was true, because as we've noted, in that 1911 case against Standard Oil, the company was broken up into 34 different pieces. So that was Stephanie Gorton, author of Citizen Reporters, S.S. McClure, Ida Tarbell, and the magazine that rewrote America. Jack Beatty, why is it important to understand uh, the role of Tarbell and the other muckrakers of the time? 
Well, you know, uh, her father, Franklin, uh, he was put out of business by Rockefeller, but he retaliated by joining up with uh, vigilantes to sabotage Standard's oil tank. And, of course, he retaliated by planting the time bomb of his daughter's contempt. Uh, she she succeeded uh, – in, in really tarring uh, Rockefeller lastingly. Uh, his biographer, most recent biographer, Ron Chernow, says, America's most private man was turned into its most public and hated figure by her writing. All the depredations, he writes, of a long career, everything Rockefeller had thought safely behind him, rose up before him in haunting and memorable detail. Such was the power of the word. It never, and, and, and Rockefeller's reputation never recovered. He was widely execrated, the most unpopular man in America right through most of his life. Hmm. Well, so Charles uh, Postal, I, I feel like we need to move forward just a couple of years here. We never have enough time to go in as much depth as I'd like, but... Um, the Standard Oil case, uh, and if I have my dates right, the the, the Morgan case as well. These all came um, because of the 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 Sherman Act and what the Clayton Act is that is that in the similar in the same time period, but before uh, Louis Brandeis joins the Supreme Court. Do I have do I have my my dates right there? Yeah, that's okay. So you, that, you have your dates dates right. The Clayton Act is actually 1914. So ah, that's okay. a, that that uh, tightens that shores up the weaknesses in the Sherman Act, which really is quite useless for breaking up the trust uh, earlier on. So so yeah. Okay. And, and then then Brandeis is on the court later. Right. Yes. So so the the reason why I ask is that we do need to spend a couple of minutes talking about Louis Brandeis himself, because as I mentioned at the top. The current folks, uh, the three names that we mentioned in the Biden administration are kind of loosely called part of this new Brandeis movement. So by the time Louis Brandeis becomes a, a justice on the Supreme Court in 1916, what role does he play in this you know, decades-long wow. movement against um, monopolistic power in this country? Well, I, I think the way it plays, Brandeis' place is really before he's on the court. Okay, uh, okay. Brandeis' real role is a, as an advocate for against uh, bigness. And he's, he really comes in as, the, as a chief uh, theorist and, and partisan of the idea that bigness is bad, the curse of bigness, he calls it. And uh, so a lot of the move towards... Uh, uh, regulation and control uh, is connected to the name of Brandeis uh, as an advocate before he's on the court. Okay, no, I appreciate and, the the correction. It's actually really important that we yeah. that we get this right. But go yeah. go ahead, yeah. Right. So so um, uh, I, one way to think about this is that is that Brandeis is part of an actually much broader movement uh, in, involves progressive Republicans like Robert La Follette of Wisconsin, Hiram Johnson of California, progressive Democrats like William Jennings Bryan. Uh, and you know, the, I mean, one way to think about this is the convergence of politics. And Brandeis is, is, is a, I think you could say, a leading theorist and advocate of this, of this convergence. But in 1912, you have an election, and it's the strangest election in American history, because 75% of the votes go to progressive, anti-corporate, anti-trust candidates. The Bull Moose Party of Teddy Roosevelt, the Socialist Party 
of of Eugene Debs, and of course the the victorious party of Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson is allied with Brandeis, and and they agree with this curse of bigness. But if you think about that election of 1912, it sweeps in a national legislature, a national Congress that enacts the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, the Federal Trade Commission Act of 1914, and the Clinton Antitrust Act of 1914. This is really the high watermark of, of government taking the reins, trying to regulate uh the trusts in America, mm. the regulate corporations mm-hmm. in America. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Um, and Jack, let me turn to you uh, to just have you chime in here on Louis Brandeis's role. And again, I appreciate Professor Postal correcting me here, even before he uh, ascends to the Supreme Court in helping shape sort of the nation's consciousness around monopoly power. Yes, he spoke of uh, industrial liberty, and he wrote that uh, you can have great concentrations of economic power or you can have democracy. You can't have both. That very almost language could come out of the current uh, uh, crop of his uh, people in the Biden administration. We have talked about Lena Khan and others. And you can hear his, um, if you will, his savviness about the way that Uh, romance with bigness can just corrupt government. When Woodrow Wilson in 1912, remember TR wanted the corporation almost to become an arm of government. And Woodrow Wilson says, well, if the government is to tell big businessmen how to run their business, then don't you see that big businessmen have to get closer to government, even even closer than now, don't you see that they must capture the government in order not to be restrained by it too much? You know, that could apply to Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> he has stood before Congress and said, regulate me. Well, the, he really means is, let me shape the regulation that I will live under and all will be fine. Brandeis's skepticism here is precisely about the, uh, the, the evils that can arise from too close an association of government with bigness. Right. Okay, so we just have a few minutes left to go. Um, I say with sorrow, because this has been such a fascinating conversation. But I want to actually draw all we've heard and, and put it right back in the in the current context. Professor Postal, how would you measure the success of uh, the, the several decades that we, we covered here? Were they fully effective in decoupling or, or, or monopolistic power from uh, or breaking up monopolistic power and its effects on on democracy? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, I mean, to me, there, it's really problematic. Do we think about the great victory of breaking up Standard Oil and it was broken up into 34 companies, but the big ones turned into Chevron and Mobil and Exxon and are, you know, that is, that's, that is what, that was the end result of breaking up Standard Oil. It, it came back as big and strong as ever. Uh, and so I think the real question is, I think the question that we still face, is it a question of breaking up, say, Amazon, or is it a question of regulating and controlling Amazon? And I, I, I'm of the, you know, I'm of the 19th century farmer point of view, farmers much preferred the Montgomery Ward catalog business model 
to the small business model. Uh, they thought that was great. It was cheaper, more choices, but they also wanted it to be controlled by them, by controlled by the people. And that was their idea of cooperative uh, of catalog businesses. So I think we still face that issue. Is the real problem bigness or is it a question of public control of, mm. co of companies? Mm. And I think some of the most successful things that came out of that era were things like post office banking that was eventually dismantled. But that's a really great idea. If we have this we have this very tough banking system for people who without great means in this country. If you don't have a lot of money, banking is very expensive and very yeah. difficult. Yeah. So uh, so the and, so the issue isn't so much as you said bigness but power. Jack, I do want to give you the yeah. last th the last 30 seconds here. Go ahead, Jack. I think that's exactly right. It's trying to live with power, accepting the necessity, the inexorability of scale and scope in production. These are all good things, but you've got to live with them. You've got to domesticate them. You've got to uh, make them safe for democracy. Well, Jack Beatty, On Point's news analyst and author of Age of Betrayal, The Triumph of Money in America, 1865 to 1900. Jack, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And Charles Postel, professor of history at San Francisco State University and author of Equality, an American Dilemma, 1866 to 1896. Professor Postel, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This is On Point.